Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. This week we'll be beginning at John chapter 6, verse 16. The Bible says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already became dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Father, we do pray that you would bless your word today. We have no idea who is sitting there listening to it now, but I pray that wherever they are in you, Lord, they would either be saved, strengthened, sanctified, whatever your spirit needs to do. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Undaunted Courage is Stephen Ambrose's account of the Lewis and Clark expedition. After two years of battling nearly insurmountable problems such as hunger, fatigue, desertion, hostile enemies, severe illnesses, and even death, the party finally reached the headwaters of the Missouri River. All their advanced information had led them to believe that once they reached the Continental Divide, they would face about a half day of travel and then reach the waters of the Columbia River, and from there they could float safely to the Pacific Ocean. They were on their way to hero status. The hard part was behind them, or so they thought. Meriwether Lewis left the rest of his party and began to climb the bluffs that would enable him to see to the other side. He was hoping to see the waters that would carry them the rest of the way. Imagine what he felt when, rather than seeing a gentle sloping valley as expected, he was instead the first non-Native American to lay his eyes on the Rocky Mountains. What do you do when you think your biggest problems are behind you, only to find out you have just been warming up? Eventually, crossing the Rocky Mountains will be perhaps the supreme achievement of the whole trip. This challenge would call forth enormous creativity and perseverance. It would lead them to spectacular sights and unforgettable memories. But on this side of the Rockies, of course, they could not know any of that yet. All they knew was that when they were hoping for a downstream ride, they instead had to climb their highest mountain. In our parallel account this morning, Peter also was on his way to hero status. The hard part was behind him, which was getting out of the boat. He was mastering this water walking business. Then it happened. Reality set in. As his initial enthusiasm enthusiasm subsided, he realized just how bad the storm was. The Bible said he saw the winds and the waves. The same thing can happen to us. We launch into a great adventure. We start a new job, take on a stretching ministry assignment, or begin a family. In the initial days, we are filled with hope. We are out of the boat. 
We are on the way to hero status, or at least achieving something worthwhile. Then reality sets in. We see the wind. We face obstacles. Unexpected conflict saps our spirit. Plans go wrong. People we were counting on let us down. A virus grinds the world to a halt. And just when we were hoping for easy times and smooth sailing, we are instead looking at the Rocky Mountains. What happens next? That's what we'll be looking at this morning. The experience of the disciples caught in this storm can be an encouragement to us when we go through the storms of life. When we find ourselves in the storm, we can rest on several assurances that we will look at today. Notice with me John 6, 16. I'm going to reread last week's text just to give us context. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already became dark, and Jesus had not yet came to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. As I told you last week, we're going to be looking quite a bit at the same account in Matthew's gospel as he gives us some interesting information that John left out. If you recall from last week, we saw that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and start across while he went on a mountainside to pray. Suddenly a huge storm comes upon them and the waves start splashing into the boat. Remember, a number of the disciples are fishermen, and so they've weathered a few storms. But this one is something else. The Bible assures us that they were terrified. This is not your regular storm, as the Greek text makes clear. The term still occupies a place in our vernacular. The word Matthew uses is seismos. A seismologist studies earthquakes, and a seismograph measures them. And Matthew, along with the crew of recent recruits, felt a seismos that shook them to the core. That's the word he used to describe the storm. And he only used that word on only two other occasions. Once at Jesus' death when Calvary shook, and again at Jesus' resurrection when the graveyard tremored. Apparently, the still storm shares equal billing in the trilogy of Jesus' great shakeups, defeating sin on the cross, death at the tomb, and here silencing fear on the sea. As we read our Bibles, we discover that there are two kinds of storms. There are storms of correction when God has to discipline us. But then there are also storms of perfection, which God uses to help us grow and mature. Sometimes we are caught in a storm because we have disobeyed the Lord. Jonah is a good example. But sometimes a storm comes because we have obeyed the Lord. When that happens, we can be sure that our Savior will pray for us, come to us, and deliver us. The interesting thing to me is the last time that they were in a storm, Jesus proved himself to be God by calming the winds and the waves just by his spoken word. 
We find that account in Mark chapter 4. In the middle of that storm, one of them notices Jesus sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the ship, just taking a nap. Panic, Peter and the disciples start shaking Jesus, screaming at him to wake up. So I imagine Jesus just waking up and yawning and wiping sleep from his eyes. You know how you are when you're aroused from a deep and satisfying sleep. And here's the question they have for him. Don't you care if we drown? I'm surprised the next verse doesn't say, And grabbing an oar, Jesus began to beat them, and he did sayeth, What is wrong with you guys? You bunch of unbelieving clowns. Maybe a good drowning is just what you need. But in all seriousness, for some of that, some of us, that's exactly the question we would ask Jesus. Don't you care? If you care, then why did you allow us to get in this boat? Why did you allow us to buy this house, move to this town, take this job, get married to that person? If you cared, you wouldn't be sleeping. Don't you care that we are drowning? Maybe not in water, but drowning in debt, in bitterness, in loneliness, in disappointment. Jesus, if you care, you would do something. Peter and the other disciples struggle to believe that God cares because they are doing what we often do. And that is... Measuring God's concern for us by how hard it is raining. Jonah was in a storm because he disobeyed God and had to be corrected. But today we see that the disciples encounter a storm because they obeyed Christ and had to be perfected. Jesus had tested them in a storm before when he was in the boat with them. But now he will test them by being out of the boat. As it says in one of the church's great hymns, the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the mission would be lost. The mission would be lost. Sorry about that. I was raised on Gilligan's Island. Well, not on the island itself, but watching it, I mean. Anyway. Matthew records the time of day as the fourth watch of the night. This is between 3 and 6 a.m. Remember, the feeding of the 5,000 had just taken place. It was daylight when the disciples entered the boat. This is Matthew 14, 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Matthew tells us he sent his disciples out on the lake when the evening was come. So it is possible that the disciples have been trying to cross this lake for more than eight hours. And since this lake is only eight miles wide, and with the type of boat they would have been traveling in, the trip across would normally take two to three hours. And yet we see it's taking them eight hours just to get to the middle of the lake. To their credit, Jesus has called them to go from one place to another, even in a storm. 
And no matter how bad the storm got, they continued to obey the Lord. No matter how hopeless it seemed, and no matter how tired they were, they continued to obey. We love the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Sometimes, this is what that looks like. In my experience, signs follow decisions. The way you overcome spiritual inertia and produce spiritual momentum is by obedience. And the tougher the obedience, the more potential momentum it will produce. I think the primary reason most of us don't see God moving is simply because we're not moving. If you want to see God move, you often need to make a move. The danger is we can wait around for decades waiting on God to move on our behalf, when in reality we have not acted in obedience in some form or fashion. And so while we are waiting on God, God is waiting on us. Back to our account. When Jesus came to them, he found them doing what he had called them to do. And when he finally gets in the boat, they will find themselves instantly at their desired destination. This very morning, you may be one that God has called to do something. And in obeying him in that calling, you now find yourself in the middle of a storm. And you're only halfway to where you are intending to go. And you know that in and of yourself, you don't have what it's going to take to arrive at that final destination. It is so easy during those times to think, I'm going to fail here and I'm not going to make it. It's so far away and I fear God's promise is going to be proven false in this circumstance. It feels like God has given me the command, but he has not coupled with it the power to obey that command. But what the disciples did not know and could not know was that if it was necessary to walk on the sea to get there in order to accomplish both his will and promise, then that is what Jesus would do. Now, Matthew tells us once again that the boat was in the middle of the water. And so that means Jesus has walked around four miles on the water to reach them. Of course, the critics love to bash this story. Did Jesus really walk on the water? Or maybe he does surf on a patch of ice. That's the conclusion of a 2006 scientific article published in everyone's favorite bedtime reading, the Journal of Paleolimnology. That's just a fancy word for the study of lakes. The article was entitled, Is There an Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? Dr. Doran Nof, an, ex an expert in oceanography and limnology and his co-authors, speculate that an odd combination of atmospheric conditions may have caused rare patches of floating ice on the Sea of Galilee. According to their calculations, the chances of this floating ice phenomenon happen, happening are less than once 
every thousand years. But those odds didn't deter them from questioning whether Jesus walked on water after all. Perhaps Jesus just surfed on a patch of floating ice. To be honest, I'm not sure which one would be more amazing. Surfing a piece of floating ice across the Sea of Galilee for four miles would take miraculous balance. And if those patches of ice appear only once every thousand years, it would also take miraculous timing. I would love to see a high-definition, slow-motion, instant replay of either one, Jesus walking on water or surfing on the ice. But Dr. Nove's theory may reveal more about the human psyche than the circumstances behind Jesus' miracle. Because we have a natural tendency to explain away what we can't explain. And that's why most people miss this miracle. But as I have said in the past, if you can believe Genesis 1, that God created everything out of nothing, then no miracle is a big deal. If God created physics, then he can suspend those laws anytime that he chooses. In John's account, when they see Jesus walking on the water, John simply records, and they were frightened. That's very kind and generous. Matthew, however, spilled the beans about what really occurred. He writes, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. It is a ghost, they reasoned. I guess ghosts were in abundance on lakes in those days. I don't know. So one reason they were so afraid was there was a superstition in that day that right before a person drowned, they would see a ghost. Like you're not having a bad enough day already. Not only are you going to drown, but now you have to endure being haunted on the way down. Matthew says, and they cried out for fear. That hardly captures the emotion in the original language. Where it says they cried out for fear, the tense in the Greek is they screamed at the top of their lungs. These aren't just exclamations of surprise. These are high-pitched, scared little girl screams. Also can't wait to see the DVD of that in heaven. Look at verse 20 with me. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I love the command from Scripture to fear not or take heart or don't be afraid. It's given for those who are losing heart. On the surface, these words don't seem very helpful. They're nice to say. Perhaps a stitch onto a pillow and take to a nursing home. But telling someone who is losing heart to take heart is like telling someone who is hungry not to be hungry. It's like telling a two-year-old not to be afraid of the dark. But when the Bible tells us to take heart, it's not a call to have confidence in ourselves, but to have confidence in God. Based not on some, self, some contrived self-confidence, but on confidence in who God is. Have you ever noticed the number of times that Jesus tells the disciples not to be afraid? It seems the disciples were either often either scared or asleep. We all know fear is a powerful emotion. 
Fear can captivate us in a way that no other emotion can. For example, did you know that the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of more than 30 feet straight ahead? Yet, these magnificent creatures can be kept in a zoo with an enclosure of only having a four-foot wall. Why? Because these animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will land. I can sometimes relate to the impala. There have been times when instead of stepping out in faith, I remained rigid because I couldn't see where that step would lead. But by its very definition, faith is the ability to trust what we can't see. And with faith, we are freed from the flimsy enclosures of life that only fear allows to entrap us. Sometimes it is true that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, because fear is the absence of faith. You see, faith is developed through struggle. If you ask people what faith is, most will answer, faith is believing even though you don't have evidence. That's true. But faith is not just believing in spite of no evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequence. Faith says, I will do what the Lord says even though it means a storm will be heading my way. Even though it means there will be difficulties, obstacles, and challenges. Even though it may be brutal and difficult. Even though I must struggle, I will obey. Struggles stretch us and help us move further in our Christian experience. When they first manufactured golf balls, they made the covers of them smooth. Then they discovered that after the ball had been roughed up some, you could get more distance out of it. So they started manufacturing them with dimpled covers. So it is with life. It takes some rough spots to make us go the furthest and reach our full potential. We return to Matthew for what happened next. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I think it's a little comical that Peter actually asked the question, Lord, if it's you. Who else would it be walking on the water in the middle of the night? I mean, had Peter been fooled in the past with this? Of course, I'm not making fun of Peter. I would have never said what Peter said. If it were me, I would have said, Lord, if that's you, please get in the boat and help us bail water. The next verse says, so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Can you even imagine that? Jesus actually beckoned Peter to step out of the boat. The other guys in the boat are probably thinking, glad I didn't say anything. Forgive my active imagination, but at this point, I can just imagine John looking at Peter and saying, go ahead, big mouth. We'll be praying for you. But because of his faith in Christ, Peter is only one of two people in all of human history to actually walk on water. 
It is here that Matthew records, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Despite Peter's great faith, this was his downfall. He lost focus. He took his eyes off Christ and looked at the storm instead. What we focus on is of critical importance. Tom Friends of the New York Times asked Coach Jimmy Johnson what he told his players before leading the Dallas Cowboys onto the field for the 1993 Super Bowl. Johnson said, I told them that if I laid a two-by-four across the floor, everybody here would walk across it and not fall because our focus would be walking the length of that board. But if I put that same board 10 stories high between two buildings, only a few would make it because the focus would be on falling. Johnson told his players not to focus on the crowd, the media, or even the possibility of falling, but to focus on each play of the game as if it were just a good practice session. The Cowboys won the game 52-7. to The latter half of the verse says, And beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, save me. I don't know why he was surprised. Of course he was sinking. Peter's nickname was Rock, after all. By the way, Peter's prayer of Lord, save me is the shortest prayer in the entire Bible. It's only three words, but it's a great prayer. For in it, we have the Lord on one end, us on the other end, and salvation sandwiched in between. You see, it's not the length of your prayer, but the strength of your prayer that matters. James says the fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And when you're about to drown, you tend to pray fervently. We must also give Peter credit for knowing that he was sinking and for crying out to the Lord for help. The text says he cried out when he was beginning to sink and not when he was drowning. Then how come then do we only call out to the Lord sometimes as a last resort? I sometimes have the tendency to exhaust every avenue in the flesh before I realize I'm about to drown. How much better would it be if as soon as the problem arose, we would admit that we need the Lord's help and just save ourselves from swallowing a bunch of water? And of course, if you know the story, Jesus takes Peter by the hand. They both walk on the water back to the boat. Our passage in John 6, 21 tells us, So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What kind of effect did that have upon the disciples? Matthew records, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When in Matthew 8, Jesus calmed the first storm, the disciples said, What manner of man is this? But now the clear testimony is, You truly are the Son of God. Not only did he walk on water, but as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, they arrived immediately at their location. It reminds me of Star Trek with Beam Me Up, Scotty. But why is this story recorded in the Bible? 
The whole purpose of the storm was to help the disciples grow in their faith. After all, Jesus would one day leave them, and they would face many storms in their ministries. And so they had to learn to trust him, even though he was not present with them, and even though that it looked like he didn't even care. As we close this morning, what was the purpose of the storm? So that the disciples would know that Jesus is the Son of God. That's also what our storms are for. Always remember, you can't have a testimony without a test. Since he is the author and the finisher of our faith, whatever he starts, he completes. We may fail along the way, but in the end, God will succeed, as is evidenced by the fact that Jesus and Peter walked on the water together and went back to the ship. Why did Jesus walk on water? I believe it was to show the disciples that the very thing they feared, which was the sea, was only a staircase for him to come to them. If Jesus tells us to come, then that word is going to accomplish its intended purpose. It is so important for believers to remember that no matter what comes our way, God is in control of the situation, and God is going to take care of us. The story has been told of a believer, Frederick Nolan, who was fleeing from his enemies during a time of persecution in North Africa. Pursued by them over hill and valley with no place to hide, he fell exhausted into a cave, expecting his enemies to soon find him. Awaiting his death, he saw a spider weaving a web. Within minutes, a little buck had woven a beautiful web across the mouth of the cave. The pursuers arrived and wondered if Nolan was indeed hiding in there. But on seeing the unbroken and unmangled web, they thought it impossible for him to have entered the cave without dismantling the web. And so they went on. After a while, Nolan burst out of the cave and exclaimed, Where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. Where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. There is no need to wonder how God will take care of you. Just be assured this morning that he will, even if he has to walk on the water. Father, we do praise you this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are that kind of Savior, that you do indeed care for us. Father, even those times that we may feel like that you don't, we know that you care for us, Father. I pray that you would make that just true in everyone's heart. Give us a fresh understanding of that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks again. We will see you next week.
have been too far away.